Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. We're going to be talking with the the illustrious, the inimitable (laughs) Tara Johnson. Uh, who is now Chief Executive Officer of the Illinois Valley, excuse me, boy, that was a screw-up, sorry, Iroquois Valley Farmland REIT. A REIT is a real estate investment trust. Uh, Tara has quite the pedigree. Not only has she founded the shop that we work for and uh, uh, actually hired some of us, including myself, so full disclosure there, right? we got to be nice to you. Yeah, pretty much all (laughs) of you I've hired, so there you go. So Tara is a serial entrepreneur. She did start a business called Tara's Way. She raised $14 million in private equity capital to get this big business started up and ran that for a number of years. Also founded, like I mentioned, the Food Finance Institute and the Edible Alpha Brands. Former president of Slow Money Wisconsin. She's on the selection committee for the Nutrition Capital Network, and she has won a whole host of awards for her entrepreneurial prowess over the course of uh, the last decade or so. So we are terribly excited to have Tara Johnson back with us today talking about conservation revenues and ecosystem services. So I'm going to turn off this screen and just have our lovely talking heads here. And if it doesn't look right, Shelby, please let me know. So Tara, what else would you like to tell us about your role at Iroquois Valley and Iroquois Valley's role in the farm financial sector? Sure. Well, first of all, I got to say that you sound like you've been hosting things forever, Andy. So it's so (laughs) awesome to hear that. Um, uh, It is funny to be on the other side of this, right? Um, So, yeah, um, Andy did a great job introducing me. I don't need to go into more about me, Um, but I will talk about Iroquois Valley because it is related to this topic. So um, um, I I decided after being pestered by the the found one of the founders of Iroquois for a couple of years, I decided to finally say yes and and agree to become the CEO of Iroquois Valley. And that happened like six weeks ago, something like that, seven weeks ago. It seems like forever in some ways. Um, <laughs> but Iroquois Valley is a is a REIT, a real estate investment trust, which means that we um, we buy and hold farmland. And our mission is specifically related to organic farmland. Um, one of the other partners, so Dave Miller is pretty well known. Some of you on here are probably know Dave. Um, um, there, he is a, there's another partner who founded it who's a doctor. And he um, is, was very and still is very passionate about the mission of Iroquois Valley because he sees the health impacts of the chemicals in our food system and feels very strongly about wanting to take them out of the, our food production system. So Iroquois Valley started like um, 14 years ago. Um, and since then, we've grown to be a REIT that has um, 85 million under management. So that means we have 85 million that we've deployed or are deploying into farmland. Um, We're in, I think, 15 states now. Um, And our mission is to get, it's not just to hold farmland, but also to get it into organic status. So we will bring farms that are conventional, who are operated by somebody who wants to make them, turn them into organic status, right? Um, And why that's all relevant to this discussion is that, you know, more and more our farmers are moving in a regenerative path, right? And a lot of the regenerative practices are things that organic farmers do, especially if they're being very intentional about their organic practices, um, they're, they're adopting these practices. So, so our portfolio has farms that are, are doing, are implementing conservation practices on their farms um, or what we would call regenerative, some regenerative um, practices. So, 
So yeah, that's that's our role. And so we're um, we will do we will in states where we're allowed to do so. We have Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa have anti corporate farm laws that preclude us from buying land into right. our portfolio. Right, but um, we write mortgages in states where we can't um, bring land into our portfolio, and sometimes we. We will buy land and lease it back to a farmer, and then the farmer will um, get their operation up and running and want to buy it, and then we will um, we will sell it to them. But but our preferred um, we we try very hard to have the exit to a farmer in our portfolio. Um, yeah. Yeah, because they're really committed to the practices and also to the communities and to the idea of farmer ownership. Um, so, yeah, that's what we do. So just to set the stage here a little bit, I, I, I try to be a stickler for terminology right, to make sure everybody knows what the heck we're talking about. So enhancing farm revenues with conservation practices and ecosystem services. What do we mean when we say ecosystem services? Could you give us an example? Uh, sure. So um, I think I think it's great that you bring that up because these words mean different things to different people. <laughs> so when I give you like my definition, I'm giving you my definition. I think other there, maybe other people would say it's something else. But I'll give you sure. an example that um, if a farm um, does something like they they do repairing buffer mitigation. So they're planting and they're there some some say it's perennial um, grasses around a, a creek that is stopping phosphorus from running into their into that creek right they've they're providing a service which is keeping that phosphorus onto the farm as opposed to having it go down in the creek right and and monetizing a service like that is is I think part of what we're going to talk about today is the and, and it's kind of an emerging world of this. And I see that Marie Raboyne is on here and she's really actively um, working with farms in Dane County over this. So it'd be great at some point to, to bring her in to have her share a little bit about what she does. That's fair warning, Marie. I'm just saying, Marie. <laughs> Comb your hair. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, just so another contextual thing. Do farmland, so do conservation revenues, do they really amount to much? Can they make a financial difference for a farm business? Um, the answer is yes. Um, I, I, I'm good, and there's a whole continuum, and you and I will talk about this, but I, I mean, I've worked with farms where even something that has been around forever, like CRP, um, when you look at the financial life of that farm, that CRP payment is paying the property taxes every year. So, I mean, that that's a material thing for a farm, right? And that's just a program CRP that's been around for a long time, right? Yep. Um, so that's one place. I mean, the other extreme right now, I would say, is probably solar arrays. The, the, um, the amount of money that you can make on a 40 acre solar array will dwarf anything you could possibly legally grow on your farm. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, and then there's a lot in between. And then I think another thing to realize about this is it, you can ladder it. I, I call it laddering. Like you can have CRP and maybe you're getting government equip programs. We'll talk some more about that, like help with yep. planting or something on the same piece of ground. Right. So so it's not um, it's not like if I do this, I can't do that. Does that make sense? So if you start Absolutely. adding all this up, it, it starts getting to be quite substantial, the potential. And just one more clarifying question. Is this only for organic farmers? Okay, so so Tim Bay posted, I just got to say, he says, we call it stacking. And Tim Tim has been in this business for a while. So <laughs> I will say, okay, I call it ladder. It's a stack. <laughs> all right. And is it only organic? No, not, not at all. I mean, I'm speaking, you know, from Iroquois Valley's perspective, we are committed because we want chemicals out of agriculture. But the practices are things that 
that conventional farms can take advantage of also. Cool. Okay. Excellent. So you uh, you mentioned uh, EQIP and NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, at their environmental environmental quality incentives program. Are they? Um, I'm, I'm sure that a pretty large proportion of our audience has heard of those folks already. Is that is that the low hanging fruit? Is that the place to begin when you're starting to investigate conservation revenues on your farm? Well, so I would say yes, and. And and there's I'm, you hear that pause in my voice. Um, it, it, the reason the reason I pause is that um, that the NRCS has an enormous catalog of programs, right? I mean, literally, I think if if this was all you know still in the old days on paper, you would be delivering with a pack animal. Like it's it's just like this huge <laughs> stack of of programs. And so it's hard for, sometimes it's hard for farmers to sort through all that. Like, what is it that's relevant to my farm? Which sure. leads me to people like, like Marie, there are people out there who are really good at helping people um, figure out what is relevant for their farm and what isn't relevant for their farm. And then helping navigate that, right? NRCS has people who do that. Um, and, and I got to say that, you know, from my from my seat at Iroquois Valley now, we work with farms all over the place. Um, there's a big range in how um, how helpful and useful people in the offices are. I got a two four farmers right, and it's so I'm I there the amount of money that's available for these practices is material and significant enough to deal with the hassle of doing it, right? And sometimes you may be lucky to live in a place where you have a great person and who really help clarifies everything and really helps the process move smoothly. And then you have a situation where that's not true. And, you know, we go through different governmental regimes who cut budgets and it's not necessarily people's fault, right? It's just a government bureaucracy. But what I tell people all the time is, if you can find a way to work with it, it's in your interest to do it just because of the range of um, practices that they will fund, at least partially fund. Now, the thing about it, about all these is they're, they're cost share programs and they are matching. So this is a thing to keep in mind, right? So, um, so, to, well, two things about it. They're matching and they're reimbursing. So you have to have a mechanism to pay for the, pay for it up front, submit a receipt and get reimbursed for half, and you'll get reimbursed for half of it, right? That's the, the sequence of events here. And that sequence can take a while, right? So you get, you, you make your application. They say, yeah, we like that project and yeah, we're going to do that money thing. Um, all right. And then you got to go out and find the, you know, what, if you're not doing it all yourself, you have to get the help. You got to do the practice. You've got to pay for it. And it could take a year, right? That, that whole sequence of events. And, and that is provide, it's, it's another thing about this, right? That you have to have the cash up front in order to do it. And then you get reimbursed. So when you're so thinking farmers out there that are filling out a schedule F at the end of the year and you see that line that you've never used before that says conservation expenses, this is something that you can be written off at the end of the year too, in addition to having that cost share. So the other nice. you know, just kind of technical side benefit. Yeah. So when I when I think about uh, conservation practices that farmers can institute through the NRCS, one of the first things that comes to my mind is cover crops, mm -hmm. right? But it's much more than that too. So the folks that you've worked with, Tara, what have been uh, what have been the things that they have uh, taken advantage of through the NRCS to get some cost share dollars for their farm? Mm -hmm. So what we see, I think what I've seen and um, what what we see at Iroquois Valley. Um, um, so with grazers, you know, there's there are things with path planting, pasture, um, fencing, um I think hoop houses, like I yep. think, right there. So each, so that's not cover crops, it's grazing, but that that's an example for um, 
for that. Um, a lot of things related to if you're looking at a piece of ground and you see, um, you know, I was just looking at a piece last week that had a big pond like it and, and there was clearly, um, uh, an opportunity for riparian buffer mitigation on that property. And then there was a pond and then, you know, the, the, and this is in like, like central Southern Illinois, right? So the, I, everybody's instinct is like, oh, well, we'll put in drain tile <laughs> and well, suddenly, you know, <laughs> and, and are like, yeah, well, maybe, but that, per, that particular property had so much water on it that, that I, yeah, probably not going to work real well. Probably better to to take that parcel and take it in a different direction, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, that you mentioned the high tunnels. That's when I work with uh, veg growers and they're looking to start doing some protected culture. I, I often encourage them to look into the NRCS's the the Equip program and the high tunnel initiative within that because it really can be a substantial amount of dollars. I mean, we're talking about a you know, a ten or twelve thousand dollar, you know, sticker price high tunnel, and probably three quarters of that can get can get cost shared, half to three quarters, depending on which uh, which kit you use. So there's some really substantial advantages to uh, some of these startup costs if the land that you're on fits the mold. Mm -hmm. The other side of uh, of this that I've heard in addition, so people talk about equip an awful lot and their the grazing practices, the cover crops, the high tunnels, the organic initiative. Uh, CSP, the Conservation Security Program, is another one, another side of the, the NRCS uh, benefit. Um, have you got many of your farmers taking advantage of CSP? Uh, yeah. Now, that actually is something that for Iroquois Valley farmers is um, is an important program because um, it is it, – it allows people who have already been doing things to get to make an application to do things even better, right? So it isn't like, okay, we're going to go from ground zero doing nothing to implementing something. It is a, it can be additive, right? And that because of that, and because we're, uh, we're already working with organic farmers that, that often is very helpful for, for that case. And it too has a really wide range of applicable um, projects. Josh Bendorf actually makes a, uh, yes, Laura, a conservation stewardship program, exactly. Josh makes a nice pro a point in the chat about conservation practices could have more value if added to the farm businesses on targeted portions of the field that really aren't producing enough yield to be profitable from economically totally. recoverable from the, all the operations. Yeah, and that's 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 that calculus I was describing of looking at a piece of ground and saying, yeah, there's water on that property. But it, should we like try to put in drain tail and try to take the water away, or is it so much, you know, and 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 or is it so much that even if you did that, your yields would be bad anyway, and you might as well take it in this other direction, right? Um, yeah, that's a really good point. So you mentioned the, the the practices for CSP, and uh, are these are these dollars available only for practices that are new, or are they also available for practices that farmers are already doing? Um, I, you know that's a really good question. With the case of CSP, it, they they look at, um, and that, I think this is true for for even in equip too. It's like, and this is a thing about conservation practices. It's a bundle. It's a, it's not just one thing usually, right? We're talking about an ecosystem and a bunch of things that are happening um, on the farm that are, that, that are holistically I'll use that word. Um, um, and, and so, so with, with the, um, CSP in particular, they're, they, they, I think they use the word bundle, like practice bundles. It's a bunch of things, right? And maybe some of them are already in place, but not the, the bundle isn't in place, right? Got it. Yeah. Got it. So some of these practices that NRCS is encouraging um, are also starting to get traction with other sectors as well. And I'm thinking specifically about nutrient mitigation here. So mm -hmm. like states like Illinois and Wisconsin and Iowa that have substantial 
uh, crop and livestock sectors are, are really starting to feel some, some public influence uh, to play a, a larger role to keeping nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, NNP, out of surface waters like rivers and streams. Um, how's that playing out? on farms what 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 can farms do to help and what are the incentives that are available to do that yeah so so the idea with this is the is we want to keep it on site right and um is instead of having it run off um and I, I, believe it or not this is sort of um when i when this is relevant i'll get you all there when i built my factory i had to put a, a pre wastewater pretreatment plant I actually owned a wastewater pretreatment plant at some point in my life um, because we could. The proud owner of. <laughs> I was the proud owner of a pretreatment plant. Yeah. Um, so we we could because we had to we had to take some of we had to mitigate some of our discharge before it went into the wastewater treatment plant. Too much too high a BOD load can kill off a wastewater treatment plant. So so we logical oxygen demand. BOD. BOD, yeah. So, uh, so we had our little um, pretreatment plant, and um, and and that was necessary because we could kill off the wastewater treatment plant. That in the past, what what um, like like a treatment plant would do was would go to their their because we have phosphorus. Phosphorus in particular is really hard for wastewater treatment plants apparently to get rid of. So they go back to the manufacturers and say, put pretreatment on your plant, you know, that so they were they've been doing this with manufacturers for for a long time. What I guess is I would say is newer is the idea that hey maybe we could we could do this with farms. We do the kind of like we've been doing it with with um, manufacturers, but instead of having a, a pretreatment plant, we're changing the practices on the farm that keeps the nutrients on the farm. And that um, that is something that I know Marie on on this has been really involved in here in Dane County. Um, for those of you who don't know, Dane County, um, the capital of of the state is in Dane County, and we have three lakes in uh, that surround the city, and our capitals and an isthmus. And so we care a lot about the water quality of the lakes, and we're surrounded by farmland. And so we're we're kind of acutely aware right now, from a you know citizen point of view, of the quality of the water in the lakes, um, and the wastewater treatment plan has to deal with the runoff. So, so there's a, a, a pretty active program here that Maria is involved in that, um, that is getting funds to farmers to, to do all kinds of things. Um, we, we have an example, Andy, you, you and I have worked with a farm to get, you know, we've been, we've both been working over the years on that farm and they, they're in a rural community. They're not in Dane County, right? It's, this is, this is Green County, which is very rural. Um, and the municipality, the municipal wastewater treatment plant was looking at, gee, do I expand my plant? <laughs> very expensive, hard to permit, all that stuff. Or maybe I should just pay farmers to keep the phosphorus on the farm. And that, um, and that actually happened. And it's a 20 year contract you know, to the farmer. Um, they actually um, bought, helped them buy the um, seeds and the inputs they needed to put the buffer in. So it was a, it's a, m most certainly a material amount of money. And that's in a, that's in a um, very rural place. Tends to be the phosphorus thing tends to be a livestock thing. Right. A little livestock related. Some right? Oh, just a few cows. <laughs> we've got a, yeah, we've got a few. But it's going on in <laughs> Iowa too, though. There's a pretty big initiative that um, Bartlett Duran, who teaches for FFI sometimes, his he's involved with a project um, that is um, part of the it's the Sand County Foundation. It's is doing this project, but it's it's the whole Mississippi watershed um, and working a lot in Iowa about with with municipalities municipal wastewater treatment plants and municipalities to implement projects like um, programs like this to to pay farmers to keep keep the um, 
phosphorus on the farm. And if I understand correctly, these phosphorus mitigation incentives are available pretty widely in in Wisconsin. I'd also be curious for anybody else who's joining us from around the country, if you've got these kind of phosphorus, or in, actually any nutrient mitigation that's available in your neck of the woods, mm -hmm. go ahead and, and clack that into the chat, if you would, just for the benefit of everybody else who's listening, too. Um, so, again, we talk a lot about money here at FFI. Is this is this substantial money? Is this little money? that comes along with nutrient mitigation, Tara? Yeah, so um, the cases that I've seen with the phosphorus, it is, I would say, substantial. So it's, it's you know, what, two, three X their property taxes? I mean, okay. it depends how much you have, right? Like, it, so, you know, the, the how much money you're paid is is how much you're mitigating, right? So, so, so there are a lot of variables in there, but the other thing I would say, though, is that for a municipality, um, um, it's easier for them to deal with a couple farms than a than a whole bunch of farms, if that makes sense, right? So, sure. I think you know, there's a first to market, first mover advantage here, <laughs> uh, right? Absolutely. Um, to to try to talk to folks about what might you know if there's any need for that in your community. Is it a flat per acre type of rate like a lot of people have been used to getting paid on in the past or is it a little bit more complex? It's more that? complicated because it's tied to the actual amount of phosphorus, for example, phosphorus, it's tied to the actual amount it's mitigated. Well, at least I, I say at least in the, in the situations I've seen, maybe there are other mechanisms that, that municipalities are using. Do you need land that's adjacent to a municipality? No, it needs to be on the watershed for the municipality, right? So, Got it. you know, upstream, upstream, yeah, not downstream, yeah. Good point, Lindsay. Excellent, thank yeah. you. So, I it it feels like energy NRCS cost share dollars have been around for a good long time, yeah, and these new nutrient mitigation programs are, are, are really starting to get pretty widespread. They're available around much of Wisconsin and other states as well. Um, just recently, I've started to see quite a few acres that are that are planted to a new energy crop uh, solar panels. <laughs> um, why is this happening now? Is there, a, is, there a, is there a financial benefit to the farmer for that kind of energy infrastructure development? Oh yeah, and it's big. Um, so comparatively speaking, so um, uh, this is a national phenomenon, right? And you can imagine there are places in the West where there's a lot more sun than there is here, <laughs> and um, you know, and there, Colorado. We were talking to some folks in Colorado about some projects out there, and. Um, it's it's like the dominant the dominant conversation is can we put in solar? So the thing about the solar is um, this the the not every farm is going to it this won't work on every farm. Why not? Because you need a utility that needs um, that is in the market for renew renewable energy, right? So they're, they're trying to, the utilities are trying to build up their re renewable energy portfolios. You have to be in one that is looking for that, right? Because they're, this is power that's going to get, go back to the utility. It's not, you're not using all this power. I mean, a 40 acre solar array, that's not being <laughs> used by one farmer. Uh, right. So you need a big grain dryer to use all that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a grain dryer could actually probably use. I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, the the point of this exercise is you need is it's going back to utility, and the utility has to be interested in taking the the power. Right. Otherwise, this won't work. Um, so the frustration for people with this is that that's not true everywhere. So some utilities are looking, some aren't, some are more aggressive, some are more innovative, like there's a whole spectrum of things um, there. But what I, what I can say um, is that there's a material amount of money there. I mean, a seriously material amount of money um, 
um, for people who, for whom it works. Um, yeah. That comes in the form of a rent, a purchase. How, how does the farmer actually get paid for these kind of things? Um, it's, a. um, so I, how to say this? I'm not exact. And I bet I don't, uh, how does different utilities are handle things differently. And sometimes you're working not directly with the utility. You're working with a, with a service, I'll call it a service provider, but these are people who go out and, and source these deals and put them together on behalf of a, of a utility, right? They're not buying the land though, right? It's, it's from the projects that I've seen, one of the things that's, um, even though it's a fixed, you know, improvement, if you want to call it to the land, it's, it's, you're not selling your land, right? So it's a lease, think of it as kind of a lease payment, but you're also getting paid um, based on the power generated, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I just think that's an important distinction for folks to be aware of that even those acres that are planted to solar panels, they, they're still in the possession of the farmer that owned them before. Yeah. And I think the expected life on a solar, I, I don't know, there may be some like Tim may know, Tim Bay on here may know this also, but the expected life on a, on a solar array like that is like roughly 20 years. And what or he said, 25, we were, darn close. <laughs> we were close. So 25 years. And, you know, we haven't been at this long enough to know, well, along the way, are they going to have to switch out the panels because they get cloudy or, you know, are we going to upgrade the whole thing? I, I think another thing for people who on here are farmers to keep in mind about this is, is, um, it's the easy no-brainer thing for the utility is to just put them in and have them on, you know, really close to the ground, which means you can't graze anything under it. And there's no, there's no consideration of planting anything underneath it. And I don't know if anybody's seen one of these, but they get to be a weedy mess underneath it <laughs> mm. uh, because there's, you can't get under there to mow or anything and who's going to mow 40 acres. Right. So, so anyway, it, it requires a bit of a conversation, but you can, they can be, excuse me, mounted higher. So there are places that where they're mounted higher so that it's grazable underneath it. There's some um, ways to get the utility to raise it up, maybe not as high as animals for grazing, but at least to put like a pollinator um, perennial um plant pollinator planting under there so it doesn't become kind of a weedy mess um and it, and it's serving another ecosystem function then if it's doing that yeah i think that's also a really important distinction that 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 acreage isn't completely out of um some form of production whether it be pollinators for bees and honey or sheep grazing or you know, and, and Tim even mentioned they may be able to earn carbon offset on the same land as the as the solar array. So this is another another stacking instance like like Tim mentioned. Yeah, this before. one is actually a physical stacking too, right? right. Like, exactly. Yeah. Think stacking. Yeah. What what is really interesting to me about this right now is if you think about a scenario where you had a piece of ground and you had a pollinator thing and you had you're now doing you're now beekeeper and there's you're getting a carbon credit and you're a solar array like like lamp farmland like what is the value of that farmland then you know you think about all these ecosystem services that have just gotten stacked on this one piece of ground and and it, it's almost you're buying you're buying a bundle of things now when you buy farmland or when you own farmland, right? It's it's a really interesting it's a really interesting change, right? How much have you seen? Like I know that this isn't a static thing and there's different independent power producers and different contracts and all that kind of stuff, but just to give somebody an idea of what we're actually talking about here, is there a is there a common per acre rent you've seen out there with your clients, Tara? Well, let's see. I don't I tend to think of them in gross terms, like, you know, like what was the total amount 
Um, let me do a little math on my computer, on my uh, phone here. Divided by. So one while you're doing that, one contract that I've come across with an FFI client is somewhere in the neighborhood of twelve hundred dollars an acre. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you that that beats the heck out of the going rate for farmland rent in southwestern Wisconsin. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, attractive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I was just doing some math from some of the the things that we're looking at right now, and further west, and it's um, it's even higher than that in the west. But that but that would make sense, right? Because they're generating more power out there. Right. I mean, it depends exactly. on it's. This is like wind too, right? Like some places in the country, solar panels generate the same panel generates more power, right? And what's I I didn't want to you don't. This isn't always intuitive, right? So we I um, was talking to somebody who's up in northern Wisconsin, like at, around the Bayfield area that has a solar thing up there. Um, and it isn't a big, it isn't 40 acres, it's smaller than that. But the, the amount of power they generate up there is a lot higher than here. Isn't that weird? I was like, why? But it's, they don't get the, you know, those northern retinal clear winter days. We don't get those. We're sort of, we're kind of gray, cloudy here. So solar production is lower. No, up there they get these retinal clear days and um, they generate a lot more up there. It's interesting, right? So it's kind of like wind, gotcha. you know, when you put a wind turbine in one place, it generates more power than another place. Yeah. So Chris has got a couple of questions in the chat. Like, what does that 1,200 acres get that power producer specifically? Is it just access to that ground or is it something more than that and for how long? Um, also, is there a minimum number of panels or pan panels? Woo! Panels! or uh, amount of space that is necessary to put in one of these projects? So, you know, on one level, I'll give you the, the completely um, uh, dissatisfying answer of saying it depends. Um, <laughs> um, but, but if you think about it from a utilities perspective, um, they have programs, like in my neighborhood, people are putting solar panels on their homes, right? Right, so there are there is this distributed residential scale kind of stuff going on, right? Um, sure. I think with farms, though, what the utility is looking for is scale, right? They're, they want to put an installation in that is going to generate a significant amount of power. So the ones that I've seen are are big. I mean, you know, this is this the two that I I know of right now close to me in Madison are over 40 acres, right? Roughly 40 acres. Okay. Um, out west, we're working with a farm. They're talking about a thousand acres. Because a, wow. far, a farm out there will be 10,000 acres, right? Like just because it's dry, high, you know, rangeland and it's high desert or whatever the scenario is out there. We're not used sure. to thinking about land in that scale, right? Yeah, but I don't think, I mean, if you think of all the work it would take for a utility to come and do this in, in a farm field, right? Cause they gotta, they gotta run all the, all the infrastructure you need to take the power, right? Um, it, they're not gonna do that for a small amount of land, I don't think. Yeah. What, do, do we know, um, what happens to that infrastructure at the end of the contract? Does that, is that still the property of the power company? Does it become the, uh, the property of the farmer? Is it, is it taken out? I, do, do we know what happens at the end of these contracts yet? Um, I, my understanding is that, that all that equipment is owned by the utility. It's not actually owned by the farm. So it would, it's their, I would assume it's their responsibility to take it off. Again, this is a new thing. So I don't, I, we're not decommissioning solar arrays on farms yet. Um, right. Because we're just trying to get them um, commissioning. Um, so Tim. So Tim, Tim gave us yeah. some. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. You go. You go Tim, ahead. Tim gave us some rough math here over in the chat pod that um, about an acre is uh, of panels should produce somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half 
megawatts for production capacity. Um, and that most of the utility projects that are kind of desirable right now are 40 megawatts or greater. Um, so distributed generation facilities, I think that's what he means by like the, the, the farmstead type of ones can be 40 kilowatts to three megawatts. So that's, that's probably the kind of thing that, uh, it's like a um, home thing, right? Yeah. When you see somebody's got it on their barn or their mm -hmm. shop or their garage or whatever. But yeah, okay, so 40 megawatts is going to be like a, a desirable utility project. And Tim, if you can say anything in the chat later as we're going along about uh, end of useful life, that would be that would be interesting too. Net metering policies are key for distributed generation. Ah, okay, so net metering policies referring to um, how a, a farm or farmstead gets credited for the energy production with their utility company, I believe. Is that correct, Tara? Yeah, well, it's also, um, you you know, if you put it on your house, you want to use the power, and then net meter is also, you get that what's left over goes to the utility, right? So they, they have to be set up in order to do that. So if you've got That's one of those old analog... Thing meters it spins backwards instead of forwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's kind of the thought about it anyway yeah no, no. Uh, probably isn't actually what's doing it uh probably not yeah probably not. yeah <laughs> um okay so there, there's one last big area that i want to talk with you about today um i've i've and before we move to that anything else about solar that i that i haven't touched on with you yet yeah. Um, yes, rolling back the meter, it says Tim. Um, no, I mean, I think, I, again, it's not it's not going to work everywhere um, because of the things that we've been talking about. But it's it's this is a it is a material amount of money. Right. So if there is a possibility that it can work, I mean, it's something I think everybody should investigate, at least poke around and see what you can come up with. Got it. Okay, the other big thing, I've been seeing all these articles in my newsfeed over the course of the past, I don't know how many months exactly, that have to do with carbon farming, mm -hmm. which basically the idea that farmers can adopt agricultural practices that sequester carbon, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe even get paid for it. I mean, there's been some, there's been some discussion of that possibility. Is that, is that happening now? And if so, what practices are getting the most attention? Yeah, so it's interesting. So, um, so you know, here we are at Iroquois Valley. We've always been saying how you farm makes a difference, right? Like you can grow corn in a lot of different ways, but how you do it makes a difference in a lot of ways, right? And one of the ways that practices make a difference is in the building of humus in the soil, which is where we sequester carbon. And now that car people are more aware of climate change and people are thinking about, well, how can we mitigate climate change? Um, suddenly agriculture is, is people are like putting two and two together and going, huh, well, that could be, you know, could be that agriculture could be part of the solution to climate change. Right. And and that this, so we hear that at the same time, we've got people saying, yeah, well, it's cattle, <laughs> it's farting cows that are causing climate change, right? Methane. And um, so which, by the way, is also a function, how much they how much gas a, a, a cow emits, if you want to use that word, is directly to tied to what they eat, believe it or not. But that's kind of a whole nother show. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like a cattle genetics kind of thing. It, it's a genetic thing. It's genetic. It's also feed though. It's related to feed. Yeah. Anyway, um anyway, back on the carbon sequestration. So it turns out that that how what practices we choose to use have a can have a material impact on on how much carbon is being held in the soil. And it also turns out that though that holding of carbon and the building of humus in the soil is also really good for agriculture, right? It, and it, what do I mean by that? You can see changes in yields. You can see changes in the ability of soil to retain water, which in, in, our part of the country, you know, our climate change, although we've had this little drought 
we had some drought. If you were in Minnesota, we you had some serious drought this year. Um, so we do have that, but on average, people are saying our our um, climate change issue for agriculture is going to be more around water um, and too much of it and and at all at once kind of thing, right? And we were some of us were chatting here um, before people were coming on about about. Um, farmers having a hard time harvesting right now because we have it's raining and a lot like three inches in the last two days or whatever which is a lot yeah. for the fall and it's a time when farmers are used to you know harvesting so my point about this is is that building the humus not only does that sequester carbon but it has other benefits for farmers potentially so it's a good it's a good thing to do you know, if you're somebody like Iroquois Valley, we think it's a really good thing to do. Um, even if you're not getting paid, because you're going to get paid in a different way, right? If you're if right. you're more resilient, all right. So that's good. Now enter the possibility of of getting a payment for a credit for sequestering carbon, right? Other parts of the world have more active markets for this than we do in the United States. We have California, right? And we have, um, we have entities that are doing this and we have transactions that have happened that are, are doing this. So, okay. so what do I mean by that? In, um, Indigo Ag is something that is up and running that is doing carbon credits. They are working with, they're working in Wisconsin. I don't know if Tim wants, Tim Bay could add anything to this. Um, Marie just said, where we can, where can we get good information for farmers on carbon credit buyers? They are getting offers and asking who to trust and what to do. Yeah, that is a huge issue right now, Marie. Um, and it and we're asking different different buyers are are um they want carbon measured in different ways that's confusing for farmers um they got you know who's going to pay for the measurement that's it's an issue for farmers there's no standard right so there's no standardization um and i don't know tim if you want to jump in but tim, tim bay is leading an initiative in our state to try to get a method for reporting to be part of something that is going on um yeah so so um tim just said problem is tara's just described is a lack of standards without i i tell people this feels like it would be it's kind of like trying to we're in the beginning of the cell phone days and we don't have 4g and 5g defined or L, whatever and so everybody's just sort of doing whatever they do and it's really we're at a stage with this where that that lack of standardization is really causing problems in terms of adoption um yeah so it's not an algorithm like there is for like we were talking about before with the with the phosphorus mitigation there's not one specific math problem that everyone has adopted to say this practice sequesters this much and you get paid this many dollars well so the other the other piece of this is that i love ecosystems um services consulting firms because they they do things like you know restore prairies and all kinds of things that i care a lot about um but they, but they all have their own approach to how they handle this stuff, right? And so, and then it's in their own commercial interest to have their own proprietary approach um, and way of measuring. Um, and the result of that is this, this lack of consistency, right? And as what Maria is saying is the lack of trust in farmers. Where can we get good information on, on the buyers? And it's also, um, it's kind of the wild, wild west, you know. Do you know Bill Gates? You know, Bill, my friend Bill will buy a bunch of credits, you know, like, uh, um, right? And so, so it's weird. Um, I, there's, a, there's a really interesting thing that, um, that's going on in, in Australia where the government already does have a carbon program. So country, nation, um, you know, the whole country does. Um, and they're doing they're developing a way um, there that um, 
that measures the carbon um, sequestration of a practice, at a, like at a practice level, there is some testing requirement, but it isn't like you have to test every 10 feet in a field. Um, okay. And it is giving credit, quote unquote, to, for practices that have already been implemented. So we have this problem here, like an indigo ag scenario. They, they'll only they'll only give a credit to for for new practices, right? Which, if you're Iroquois Valley, that's not good because our farmers have been doing this stuff for a long time. I mean, they're they're right. already sequestering more carbon than a typical farm would. Um, so so for us we we look to having a system where um where there can be a recognition and a payment for for um the benefits of practices that have happened in the past the other gripe i have about things this particular thing is that the indigo eggs of the world and a lot of the way these carbon credit buyers approach this is well if they go from nothing to cover crops let's say um the the amount we can anticipate you know x amount of carbon sequestration and we're going to give them a credit for that right mm -hmm. the problem is it's a biological system it doesn't all happen all at once right it's going to accumulate and if you keep doing the practice it's going to keep getting better and better over time. And that doesn't get, it's related to the not getting paid for the stuff you did in the past thing, right? It's, it, yeah, it's not a realistic um, way of thinking about the value of the carbon sequestration. Um, but, you know, we're kind of at the stone age with this, right? Like, this is the very beginning. And I know big banks are looking at this, investment, you know, REITs are looking at this. It's coming, is what I'm what I'm saying. And right now, it's clunky, right? So why banks? Why do banks care about this? Why do banks care? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you and I've talked about this. It. I mean, they care because they care about the per financial performance of their of their the credits, right? So. They care because if this is going to improve the revenue for their farmers that they have mortgages with or something. So they care on that level. I think they also care on the level of their own regulatory environment and investors because the investors are looking at, in, you know, ESG investment is looking at like, what are you doing to, to improve the environment? What are you doing with climate change? Um, and so they're trying to figure well, out how ESG to play in there. For. Tell them what ESG stands for real quick. Um, ESG, environmental and social, so social and governance, doesn't it? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Just making the acronyms play yeah, here. So, yeah. so ESG is, is something that's getting some attention amongst bank presidents. My, my I used to work at a bank. My old boss would talk about this a little bit. Um, I bet and, he was griping about it. No, 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 no. no. Really? He's a green guy. He's oh, a green guy. He's a green he's guy. Green energy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I think banks, and I'd be curious if you share this perception or not, being you know directly in the financial sector now, are banks concerned about um, the regulations around? about new regulations around climate change mitigation coming down on farmers and agriculture. Oh, of course they are. They don't, I mean, banks never like regulation. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm in this weird because we, our REIT is organic farmland. Um, you know, we're, our lens of that is that a lot of the programs designed to provide a floor for conventional farmers don't necessarily function really well for the organic farmers. So, um, you know, there are two sides to government involvement, right? There's regulatory and then there's also crop insurance and all the other things that, that, and federal policy about food and agriculture that, provides a safety net that is stronger for conventional farmers than organic farmers. Put it that way. So this may sound like a very elementary school question, but I want to ask it anyway. Um, when carbon is sequestered by an agricultural practice, 
Is it taken out of the atmosphere forever? Is it a permanent solution? Um, so, so it depends on the practice, right? Like if you, if you sequester, you build humus on a farm and then suddenly you start going in and you, you start deploying extractive practices again, it will get released, right? It's not like it's locked up in a cell. <laughs> you know, we didn't just put it in a vault somewhere, right? Like, like, you know, those carbon those carbon extraction technologies that would like ex somehow extract atmospheric carbon oh, and yes. put them in a mine Injected somewhere, in you know, like, <laughs> and then we're going to plug them. I don't know what the hell we're planning. It's not like that, right? It's in a living thing. So if you suddenly were doing cover cropping and you built up your humus and then suddenly you stop doing that and you start and you start, you know, beating the crap out of your soil, it'll get released. Yeah, it. it's like trees too, right? Like trees are great for carbon sequestration until you burn them. Right. So when we're talking about alley cropping or silvopasturing or things like that, they have the potential to keep, keep that carbon in a fixed format for potentially for a much longer period of time. Yeah, no, and I think that's part of the appeal. I uh, The silvo thing, it's an interesting thing. I. I have I have this sense that when people get old, suddenly they want to, and they're in the Midwest, they want to build plant trees. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a grandfather who was like that. He he grew up. He was he logged in the twenties, right? He, in the northern part of our state, we we cut down like all the the trees, and he spent the rest of his life planting trees. It's just, sort of making amends. Yeah, yeah. It was a weird thing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, lots of interest right now in silvopasture and silviculture and planting trees as a way to mitigate for a longer period of time. So one of the things that uh, people have a pretty widespread perception is that organic farmers specifically have to do more tillage than conventional farmers mm -hmm. do. Does that become an issue for uh, their capacity to sequester carbon on their organic farms? Mm -hmm. So I, you know, that's a great question for somebody like Gary Zimmer, <laughs> who's like one of the lines of biological farming. He's actually very much a prop proponent of tilling, um, but there are different ways to till, right? So there's, and, God, I can't remember what he calls the way that they do it. If you've ever, it's a, it's an astonishing thing to go to his farm. So, so um, Gary Zimmer founded Midwest Bioag. He is the author of books called Biological Farming. He's a real thought leader in the whole. He's doing regenerative egg before it was a thing. Put it that way. For, for decades before it was a thing. And if you go to his farm, he can't even, they can't even use his farm as a test for test plots anymore because the soil is changed so dramatically through the practices there. And he does till not nearly as much, not as deep, not, you know, never leave ground open over the winter. You know, the idea that we're going to plow at the end of the year and we have this bare soil all winter, never do that. There's a cover crop in there. Yeah, but it is tillage is related to the carbon sequestration, right? That that idea. Um, yeah, Aaron continuously living cover is better. Cover. Yeah, <laughs> worthy thesis project: getting older, planting trees. Yeah, seriously, right? Um, yeah, and for and reducing tractor passes per field. This is carbon that will never be released. Yeah, you know it's related to that. So. So, um, so yeah, organic farmers have to till, they have to cultivate more for weed control. But things like even conventional farmers can think about modifying tillage practices to maintain carbon sequestration as well. You can think about reduced tillage, minimal tillage, ridge tillage, you know, all those different things that are different than traditional tillage on different types of soils. Exactly, exactly. That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah, and the tillage, the focus on tillage, if I if I'm correct, is a lot because the 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 exposure of the organic matter to oxygen can cause oxidization and and and, and oxidation, whatever the right the right biochemical word. Yeah, <laughs> and release some of that carbon again. 
Okay. Got it. Um, yeah, no, you will. And then they're, they're just, yeah, cover crops are an amazing, it's an amazing technology, right? It's absolutely amazing. I was just on a call with um, Gary Zimmer's daughter, Leilani, and um, um, she was saying she and her dad visited a farm back in Australia again, where they, um, it was nut trees and they raised the, there's a grower, took chemicals, killed everything. So tabula rasa, right? I'm going to kill everything. And then they planted, I think it was macadamia nuts or something, right, in okay. rows. And they had terrible pest problems. Um, um, and they're pouring all kinds of chemicals, wasn't working. So then they said, okay, we're gonna go the opposite direction. And they took out the, the every other row and they planted like perennial pollinator kind of habitat in between the rows, right? And apparently the, the um, not only did they not have pest problems, but the trees did way better. And they got to see like next, you know, one, this field treated that way, this field treated another way. Um, and that's with tree crops, right? So it's, yeah. Yeah, earth does, the, you know, you don't see in a natural system, you would never see bare earth, right? It doesn't happen. Something, something will grow on it, right? There's a reason. It's just not a natural thing. So, yeah. So just to, to drive this stuff that we've been discussing home a little bit, Tara, I, I was hoping you might be able to give us some examples potentially of, you know, farmers that you've worked with that have had, and, and you don't have to obviously name names or anything like that, but farms that have had a really substantial difference in the success and profitability of their farm as a result of some of these conservation and ecosystem ecosystem service revenues. Yeah. So um, a couple of so I'll example here in Wisconsin that you are familiar with too, Andy. Right. Um, so so this is a farm that is a um, diversified livestock grazing operation who's very committed to um, to regenerative practices and very. Um, innovate, I'll use the word innovative in the sense that they're plant, they were ahead of the curve in planting, um, well, in doing, working with a company like Midwest Bioag on soil remediation and planting perennial um, pastures. They're, they're, so they're like well into this transition. Um, and this year, I mean, they're in the, they're in the part of the state that we had a, the, there's a drought this year. Um, it, it was this weird finger right in the northern part of or Illinois and southern part of Wisconsin. And they're, um, they direct market meat. I go to their farm. I pick up meat. I went to their farm to pick up meat. It was like driving through dead cornfields until we got, until it, literally I got to their farm and it, what the pastures were not doing they weren't lush they weren't doing great but they were green and there was there was livestock on it right and there was nothing going on around them right so you see that and you go huh all right um and that same farm has um um has contracts for um for phosphorus that are 20-year contracts and i guess they're they're pretty close or have one for solar now too. So this is within driving distance of Madison, right? Um, so very real. Yeah, this is real. And it's not, um, yeah, it, it, and it's a commitment, right? I mean, a farm like that has made a serious commitment to, to be doing, con to make conservation, not just this like, I don't know, this add on to their, what they do, you know, it's not like I, yeah, I got this 40, I can't do anything with it. I'm putting in CRP. I mean, that's a thing, right? Um, and I, and don't reserve program. CRP. Yeah, CRP and don't, and any of you, don't be insulted by that. Like do that. If you can't do anything, do that. Right. I mean, you might as well, um, start monetizing your, your farm in a different way. Um, 
it, it, this, I think the hard thing about this for a lot of farmers is it, 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 it demands that you think differently about your farm operation. Like it's almost like you have to step back from the whole thing and look and say, okay, well, what is my plan for my whole operation? And what is it? And how am I going to, what makes sense in terms of conservation services, revenue streams for me to be pursuing in what parts of my, my operation, right? It's, it's just, yeah, it, you have to zoom back and come up with a different plan. And it's a, it's a physical plan for practices, but it's also a business plan. I think that's our, you know, kind of our point with this is that. Our thesis it, here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, is that, you know, there are other people, there are lots of other people um, who can help on the practices side. Um, and what we're, I think what we're good at is helping people think through the, mo the money side, right? The business model side of all this. Yeah, but it's encouraging to me to see farmers um, starting to benefit from some of this stuff. Yeah, and and there's more on the on the coast, more on the west coast, more out west. Like the more we I look at things now, a little bit bigger because I'm now at Iroquois Valley. You see a lot more interest in adoption. A lot of the money is out there, right? That's come the carbon credit behind the carbon credit stuff. And so there's just more activity out there than there is here, but it's coming. Very good. Uh, with that, we are basically out of time. And I, I really appreciate those of you who have, uh, who have taken the time out of your day to learn a little bit more about conservation revenues and ecosystem services. A huge Thank you to Tara Johnson, our former director here at FFI, our founder. Um, really appreciate the insights you've it's provided. It's always to awesome to be here. <laughs> it and is. It's always awesome it's, to have you. Yeah, well, dude, but it's awesome. You, even though you don't have time. <laughs> yeah, but it's awesome to hear your, your radio voice there, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try to keep up with that, too. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.